Okay, let's get started. Uh, I finished up on, it's today Wednesday? Oh, um, thanks for coming today. Sorry about that little hiccup. I was supposed to be at this tour, but we have a silviculture uh, search committee meeting. And believe it or not, trying to get five academics, or actually I should say four academics, a Forest Service employee, an undergrad and a grad student in a room at the same time. Oh, and a forest consultant who lives in O-Train. Big challenge. So two hours a week we're available, and it happens to be one of the hours is after this class. So that one I absolutely could not miss. I guess I'm sending you the signal that I love them more than I love you, because I was willing to go without you guys for an hour, but not them. Sorry. Actually, it's not true. Tip the balance. Um, so it turned out we could have class today after all. Uh, I still have to be out at 11.30 tomorrow, so I have had one request to start the recitation at 10.30. I don't, we don't formally have the room and I haven't asked for it, but I don't think it's ever been anybody in there when we got there at 11. So we'll just assume the room is free at 10.30 tomorrow if you want. And again, if you want some help with our outside of the regular recitation, just send me a note. Um, I'm most, most available Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday is a really busy day for me for teaching, and Tuesday I'm trying really hard to keep mostly blocked off for research, but if it's at, there's no other time, then I'll make Tuesday available, okay? Any questions about anything before we carry on from where we were on Monday? All right, like Robert, when are you gonna pick up the pace? I'm having trouble staying awake. Or Robert, when the hell are you gonna slow down? I can barely keep up. And if you have any thoughts, please um, feel free to just send me an email, slip an anonymous note under the door. I tell the undergrads to just write a comment on a water balloon and throw it at me, but I don't think I'll offer you guys that opportunity. Okay, so where we finished on Monday was uh, talking about estimating the variance and that actually the residual variance in a regression is called the standard error of the estimate, usually denoted sy dot x or sy bar x, sometimes called just... Um, RMS for residual mean square, but uh, the official term is standard error of the estimate. Uh, have any of you gotten to this point in the text? What does Pardo call this thing? Standard error of the estimate? I guess none of you got this far in the text. That's okay. Called it RMS. RMS. Thank you. <laughs> RMS. Uh, RMS is probably a more apt term because, and many times people will just call this the standard error, and that is really misleading because standard error is a measure of variability of a statistic, right, of its sampling distribution, and this, that's not what this is. This is a measure of residual variability around the regression line. So it really should be called what my regression professor called square root residual variance, um, root mean square, Okay? It's just residual variability around the regression line. And we estimate that uh, using the sums of squares uh, residual, uh, which is just the sum of the errors, and divide that by n minus 2, and we take the square root of it. And I said n minus 2 because that's the number of degrees of freedom that we have in a regression, a uh, simple linear regression. We'll have... Um, Well, we have different, no, it's usually n minus 2 for simple linear regression because two points define the regression line. Okay, so um, let, let's ask, let's first, so I've talked about something called the sums of squared residual, and actually maybe I'll just expand that. That's the sum of yi minus y hat i squared over n minus 2, like that. This little thing at the top here is the sums of squared residuals. It's the sum of the squared difference between the measured values and the corresponding values on the regression line. We call that the sums of squared residuals. There are other sums of squares that we are involved in in regression, and the, um, but, but before we even enter regression, we can think about the concept of the sums of squares of y. Sums of squared y all has other names that's sometimes referred to in textbooks. Again, I wonder what Pardo says. This is also sometimes called sums of squares t, or sums of squares total, or sometimes SYY, 
Those are all notations for the same thing. I'm going to try to stick with SSY or SS total. But what we're really talking about is the sum of the differences between the measured values and the mean. And this forms in basic survey statistics the basics for your estimating the uh, sample standard deviation and your hypothesis tests. Okay? And the sums of squared y, if you think about it, if we were to plot the data from, for, of just y for our regression model, we don't really know what the, what the frequency distribution, or distribution might look like. But usually, in a regression scenario, it's normal. It follows a Gaussian distribution, right? So if you have a normal distribution, you're going to have something. You know, it's going to be a regular subject to sampling distribution. And somewhere in here, we're going to have a sample mean. And what the sums of squared y is, is the, the, a measure of the spread or the distribution the width of the distribution of those observations around the middle. Does that make sense? It's just this measure of uh, spread. Okay? And in a regression context, we actually uh, we still maintain our sums of squared y, uh, but we're interested not in the y all alone or y independent of x by itself. The whole business of regression is we're interested in conditional distributions of y, conditional on the distribution of x. So in our regression example, when I drew it, sure, we still have y here on the y-axis. And sure, we still have a distribution. But that distribution is spread around the regression line. Right? This distribution here, we hope, is a constant. And I gave an example for any given x that we might have a little normal distribution around it. If that's true, by the way, the distribution of all of these data is going to be a, a much bigger normal distribution. That's a really bad normal distribution, isn't it? Because it's skewed. The mean of x, y is about there. So, right. so this is for all y. And this one here that I drew is just y at x equals xk. I should say it's the distribution of y, y equals xk. Fair enough? So we actually call this thing here, in uh, some cases, the, the, um, the marginal distribution, because we're only looking at this, this two-variable relationship in one direction, just on one margin. OK, so where am I headed with this? We're interested in more than just the sums of squared y. We've already defined now the sums of squared y and the sums of squared regression. If you recall, uh, the, I, which, what I just uh, erased, <laughs> if you recall, our errors are yi minus y hat i. And if a regression line is perfect, absolutely perfect, these errors or residuals are zero. What does that mean in the context of a, an actual uh, visualized regression? It means that all the observations fall right on the regression line. They're perfect. There's x, there's y, there's our regression line. And all of our observations fall exactly on the regression line. That doesn't mean there still isn't a marginal distribution here. There's the mean of y, right? Doesn't mean there still isn't a distribution in y, but it means that there are no errors. It's perfect. Okay? In this case, the sums of squared error, or the sums of squared residual, has to be zero because those errors are all zero. So the errors fall on the other line. Now, the, the exact opposite of this scenario is when there's no relationship between x and y. If there's no relationship between x and y, we still are going to have a distribution of y, but our observations 
are now all over the place. And the conditional mean, the mean of y for any given value of x in this distribution is a constant. Doesn't matter where you are in x space, because there's no relationship between x and y, the mean of y if you're here or here or here or here is all a constant. And your regression line is perfectly flat because there's no relationship between x and y. And it's centered on the mean of y. Okay? In this case, what's the sums of squared residual? In this scenario, the sums of squared residual, remember the sums of squared residual is the sum of yi minus y hat i. That's all these, the difference between this point and the dot and this point and the dot. If there's no regression, if there's no relationship, then the, the fitted values, all of the y hats, fall right on the mean. This thing is then actually equal to the sums of squares total, which is the sum of yi minus y bar squared. Because for any given x, our expected value is the mean of y. There's no relation. So we can actually, these two things become the same. So in this example, the sums of squared residual is equal to the sums of squares total. And what we're looking for in regression, obviously, is the scenario in between. How many circumstances in your field of study are you going to have a perfect regression? Never. Unless, if you can think about the Forbes example that I brought to you, that one wasn't even perfect because of measurement error. Now that's a special case. If, if Forbes had a perfect instrument, all those dots would have fallen on the line. But in reality, what you're looking for is something in between. And if something is in between, then the residual variance is somewhere in between 0 and the, the variance of y. Somewhere in between. Okay? And in, in other words, what we're looking for is uh, a search for signal in a cloud of noise. So in between, some of this sums of squares, the sums of squares total here, in an in-between scenario, is explained by the regression line. So now let's draw a regression that looks more like what we would expect in a real scenario. So there's x and y. We've got a regression line, and we have an imperfect relationship. There are some observations that are close to the line, some that are less close to the line. Okay. In this scenario, we do have a trend between x and y. The mean of y is definitely changing as you go with x. If you were to put this in little slices, calculate the mean of y, that little mean would go up as you go through time. So we have a conditional relationship between the two. In this scenario, the sums of squared residual is positive, but it's less than the sums of squares total. We have a third sums of squares that we use, which is called the sums of squared regression. And it represents the squared deviances around between the points, the mean and the points on the regression line. So let's put in the mean of y here. Where's the mean of y going to be? About there. Right? There's y bar. So we can define the uh, three types of deviances from the mean of y that are of interest to us here. There's the difference between a point, a yi, and its corresponding mean. Right? This little deviance here, I better make sure I get this right because this is essential. This is, um, well, it's obvious, actually. This is yi minus y bar. Then we have another kind of deviance here, which is the deviance between a point and its corresponding point on the regression line. This one here is yi minus y hat i. And we call that the residual. Right? And there's a third one, which is the difference between the point on the line and the mean. This is 
y hat minus y bar. This is a deviance from the mean due to the regression. This is a deviance from the mean due to the observation. And this is the residual. And the three of these, uh, when they're put together, have to add up to one. So in the perfect scenario, the perfect scenario, what happens to these deviances? If this regression were perfect, all of these dots would approach the regression line. So these little deviances here, the residuals, would go to zero, right? In the perfect scenario. So I'm going to say this line is true. We're just going to have a perfect reg regression. These little deviances go to zero, and all the dots fall on the line. What happens then? to this one. Well, there's still a difference between the observations and their mean. It's just that this deviance becomes the same as this deviance. If we get rid of the error, that's like pushing this observation towards the line here. So in the perfect scenario, we have no residual. And this little deviance, y hat i minus y bar, becomes the same as this one right here. We can use the relative explanatory power of these to derive a test that lets us know whether our regression is statistically significant or statistically powerful. And we do this by breaking down these points in something we call an ANOVA, or an analysis of variance. An ANOVA is a little different in regression than it is in experimental design, but it's fundamentally the same. We can set up an equality in terms of these little deviances. So this one, the sum of the differences between the observations and their mean, we said this sum of squared differences is called the sums of squares total. That has to break down into the sums of squares regression, which is the differences between the individual fitted values and the mean. That's the sums of squares regression. And the sums of squares error. I will try to call these sums of squares total, sums of squared regression, and sums of squared residual. As I said before, your textbook sometimes calls this sums of squares y, or sums of squares y, or syy. Anything else? Let me think. What? SST sometimes. That's usually called some squares regression because there's nothing else to call it. This is sometimes called SSE, sometimes SSE, like that. Uh, maybe it's even called SEE, -E, but that seems wrong. Sums of squared error. I'm going to try and call this sums of squared total, sums of squares residual, and sums of squares regression. Okay. This is an equality, so it has to add. It has to be the same on both sides. We're decomposing that total variance around the mean into the two components. Now, we can use this to set up uh, an f-test for the whole regression using an ANOVA table. And the usual way that's constructed, and you'll see this in uh, statistical tables, usually we'll have a column that's called source, then we'll have a column called de degrees of freedom, then we'll have one called sums of squares, one called mean squares. Why they do it this way, I don't know, but it's just the way it's done. And so you go on and fit your regression, and you calculate these components. So we have the regression here, the residual. And I have to be careful because I sometimes draw Gs that look like Ss. If you're all concerned, ask me to clarify. Total. The sums of squares we've calculated. So if you put the sums of squares regression here and the sums of squared residual in here, the mean square is the ratio of uh, the sums of square, or sorry, the sums of square divided by their degrees of freedom. Now, what are degrees of freedom? Well, remember, I, when I was trying to explain to you before what the sums of squares total was, this thing looks an awful lot like a sample variance. If you take a sums of squares and you divide it by a degrees of freedom, you have an estimate of a variance. It's just like in simple sample statistics, the sum of y minus y bar squared in sample statistics divided by its degrees of freedom. We're just one sample. 
this thing is, is a sample variance. We've taken the sums of squares, divided by the degrees of freedom, we get a sample variance. But where does this degrees of freedom come from? I mentioned in class on Monday, this is the number of independent data points that are used to calculate this statistic. These y's are just observations. This is the one and only thing here that's derived from the data, the mean. And the trick is, if you know all of these observations, you can calculate the mean, right? Because the mean is just the sum of all of the observations divided by n. If you know all of the observations, you can calculate the mean. On the other hand, if you have the mean already, you can lose one observation and still recover it because you can solve this thing. I just broke it down. I pulled one observation out here, and it's the same equality. So it means that one of these observations in YI is not independent of the mean, because if you already have the mean, you can find any one of these observations, conditional on knowing all the others. Well, in regression, we have a similar scenario, except that we know that with any two observations, we can find the regression line. And if we have two observations, we can find any one of the rest of the observations uh, corresponding to any given fitted value. So if you look at these, you can usually derive these degrees of freedom by just looking at them. We have uh, n of these values, and we have one of these statistics we've calculated from them that's not independent. So the degrees of freedom here is n minus 1. If you use the same logic to calculate that, so we can put over here, the degrees of freedom is n minus 1. If you use the same logic for the sums of squared regression, well, we have n of these, n fitted values. There have to be n values on the regression line that correspond to the n observations in the fitting data. And we have one of these. So you'd be inclined to say, well, that's also n minus 1. But it's not, because we only need two values to define a line. The rest of all of the values immediately possible to find once you have two of them. So we really only have two independent ones here for the degrees of freedom. So for the regression, we get 2 minus 1. Okay. Sometimes that's if, if we say that k is the number of predictors in our model, we have one x variable, then we would say k plus 1 minus 1. And we'll get to that when we talk about multiple regression. You may have seen it that way. The same thing applies for here. We have n of these observations. We have n of those, too. So you think it's 0, but actually, we, we only need two of those. Okay. And the trick is that these um, have to add as well. So does 2 minus 1 plus n minus 2 add up to n minus 1? There has to be an, an equality in the degrees of freedom as well. I think it does. All right, so if you take these sums of squares, sums of squares regression, and you divide it by its degrees of freedom, you can calculate an F statistic. These things, by the way, these things are variances. Right? These, this is an estimate of the variance around the regression line. This is an estimate of the residual variance. This is the variance of the regression around the mean. This is the residual variance. If you do a ratio of the mean squared regression to the mean squared residual, this thing follows an F distribution. And if you remember from basic statistics, and all you really need to remember from basic statistics is that an F distribution has two different degrees of freedom that it needs to define the shape under the null hypothesis. We can then construct a hypothesis test, which basically is looking for more signal than noise. If our regression is useful, then we have more signal than we have noise. The variance of the regression line around the mean is bigger than the residual. And we can test that and against an alternative that this is equal to 1. And remember, that's the, the, uh, not an alternative. That's a null. 
Okay? Under the null hypothesis, this statistic follows an F distribution. And the degrees of freedom, if you ever have to look this up manually, the degrees of freedom you use for your F distribution are the degrees of freedom that come from these two variances. It's not magical. You've set up the ANOVA table. The degrees of freedom for the mean squared regression is 2 minus 1, which is 1, right? And the degrees of freedom for the mean squared residual comes from the sums of squared residual here. So we get 1 and n minus 2. To draw a conclusion from this hypothesis test, you can go to an F distribution. F distributions are asymmetric and they start at 0. And the, the statistical test is set up the same way that we did it in basic statistics. We're looking for a value, an F quantile out here. We're going to call it F critical. We're looking to see if our test statistic is extremely unusual under the null hypothesis. If it's extremely unusual, we declare the null hypothesis to be false, and we accept the alternative. What's extremely unusual, we'll put probability of alpha in here. Most people use whatever you want. Most people use whatever you want. Right? This is an F distribution with 1 and minus 2 degrees of freedom. You're going to calculate this F critical and then compare it to your, your F calculated here. How do you decide what to do with your hypothesis test? Remember, it's the same as basic statistics. This is a probability density function. The total area underneath it has to add to 1. We define unusual as less than 5%, 5% or less. So the probability, if well, we normally do. We normally do. We don't always. You can set it to something else. If, our, if under the null hypothesis, our F calculated falls into this region, here we call the rejection region, then we reject our null hypothesis and accept the alternative hypothesis. Okay? Normally, we don't go and find this F critical and then compare it to our F calculated. Normally, what we do is we, we put our F, we find our F calc, and then we find the probability associated with the F calc. And if that probability is less than or equal to alpha, we reject our null hypothesis. Why do we do it that way? Both ways work. But this, this involves, both of these involve a lookup in a table. But the moment we calculate this probability, we can make our decision and we don't have to go get the table and get an F critical and compare to an F calculated and so forth. Most statistical software is self-documenting so that you can defend yourself. You're always going to get from statistical software, usually you're going to get the actual F statistic as well as the p-value and the degrees of freedom, so you can go back and calculate it if you want. And part of the reason for that is that you might want to change your alpha. So many people will report a p-value associated with the test statistic, and then you can, use, you can use your own alpha that you want, or you can go calculate some different one. Right? <clears throat> so if we reject the null hypothesis, then we've declared that there's more signal than noise, and our regression is statistically significant. Any questions about that? So what we've done so far is we've talked about the sort of con <coughs> excuse me <coughs> context of regression uh, in using diagrams of scatter plots and relationships between variables to sort of motivate the discussion of what a regression line is. We're looking at relationships. We've described how we find the best line using the method of least squares. We've talked about how we can derive the residual variance around the regression line, the standard error of the estimate or mean squared error. We've now defined a, a, a statistical test based on breaking down the variance components that give us a statistical test we can use objectively to determine whether our regression is significant. Are we done? Yes, sir. Typically, how do you, how does a researcher identify an outlier and eliminate those without bias or without appearing to be biased to reduce the noise? So it doesn't look like you're massaging your data. Well, we, we will have a whole discussion about that and some metrics you can use to help identify that. 
Because I was just looking at the cloud and thinking that a couple outliers would really whack things. Yeah. So outliers are, and, and we'll get into this, but just briefly since you asked the question, outliers are observations that are extremely unusual. The question that you have with an outlier is, I mean, you, unusual things can always happen. You guys thought you were going to get a good professor, and then you got me, for example. I mean, you, and, and I had this in my master's data set. We're, we're doing all this work in regression models, and, and lo and behold, a plot falls in a gully in Idaho, and there's this honking three-meter diameter um, western red cedar right there. It's true tree, and it was growing like stink. It was amazing. Total outlier. No other red... Um, red. See, I'm, my brain is totally red pine right now. What do you do with points like this? Clearly, they're going to have extremely large residuals, and since we minimize the sums of squared residuals, they could have a very strong effect on the regression line. If they do, we call these leverage points. They have a huge amount of leverage. It turns out they're actually more important when they're far away from the mean of x, too. <clears throat> because if they're right around the mean of x, this regression line has to fall through the mean of x and the mean of y, right? So if they're right around the mean of x, do they have much effect? I mean, they may pull the intercept down a little bit, but they don't affect the slope very much because they're right near the mean. But if they're really far out here in x space and in y space, they can have tremendous amounts of leverage. There are some techniques we'll talk about on how you can calculate leverage and identify those points. Ultimately, what we like to do is identify objectively points with high leverage Go back to the data that you collected, confirm that they're not an error. Because often they're just a mistake. Somebody forgot a zero or they thought a nine was a seven or something like that. If you confirm that they're not a mistake, that they're correct measurements, then you have to decide what to do with them. We know that, so what happens if we took a sample? You know, we're, we're doing a survey and we're trying to find out whether uh, Hillary Clinton's gonna win the next election, assuming she runs for president, right, whatever. And we, tap into t we take a random sample, and it happens to be all uh, young people from the San Francisco Bay Area. It's just coincidence. I mean, pick anyone. St. Louis, Missouri, I don't care. One direction or the other. I'm starting to learn a little bit about U.S. politics. so I can. St. Louis is fairly Republican, right? No? Dallas. What's really Republican? Like uh, Dallas. Dallas. All right. Really Republican. <laughs> And what's really Democrat? Probably San Francisco. Yeah. All right. But it just, it's just a coincidence. You drew random numbers from the phone book. And what's wrong with it? There's nothing wrong with the sample. It's, if you were to repeat it, it would be an unbiased sample. Would you use it? Would you say, hey, it's okay, Hillary, no problem. Don't even need a campaign. No, you'd say, no, this is, the sample is no good. It, it's by chance, I, I happen to collect all observations from San Francisco. I'm going to collect the new sample. The danger in that, of course, is that you keep resampling until you get the result you want, which is no better than sampling once and assuming it's perfect. There is no perfect answer because there is randomness and there is alpha as a positive number. You are going to reject true null hypotheses 5% of the time because you set it up that way. So it's an, this is why we say this. I don't know if you guys had this experience, but when I look back at my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD, almost every class in a new area was described by the professor as the art and science of. Silviculture is the art and science of designing manipulations to meet landowner objectives. Well, statistics is the art and science of collecting and analyzing data to support your research hypotheses. So there's always art in there. <clears throat> that is the instructor's cop-out. You managed to get me diverted. <laughs> But that's a start, okay? We'll come back to those methods in more detail uh, later in the class. Is that, will that do for now, Mark? Okay. Any other questions at this point? Are we good? We're done. The regression's significant. It's awesome. Let's go write it up, hand it in, send it to Deb Charlesworth, which you have to do early. <clears throat> no, you're not done. Because the fact that you've identified the regression as significant doesn't yet allow you to say very much about the coefficients themselves, other than you've estimated their means and you know your regression is significant. And by the way, if you have a significant f-test in regression, it means that the slope, if it's simple linear regression, must be different from zero. It has to be. If it's multiple regression, 
it means that one of, at least one of the slopes has to be different from zero. We'll come to that. So you take a sample, n equals 25, and you fit your regression, and you come up with your mean function. All right. You estimate B0 and B1. So I've got my B0 and my B1, which are my uh, estimated intercept and my estimated slope. But then I say, oh no, I think all the data came from San Francisco. I better do it again. So you do it again. And you get your slope and intercept a second time. And you keep doing it. A whole bunch of times, k times. So actually, we've got k in here is repetitions. Actually, that's uh, j equals 1 to k repetitions. <clears throat> you can see from this example, without thinking about it, that these coefficient estimates, the slope and is estimate, or intercept, are random variables. If you recollect the data, repeat the calculation, you get a new value. Therefore, they're random variables. It turns out that the expected value of any one of these things, if you sample randomly, is the population parameter. This means that these things are uh, statistically consistent using least squares. As you, uh, as you, if you sample infinitely, you hone in on the value. There's another expected value in here that's interesting, and that's um, an, your expected value of a fitted value for any value of x. Uh, I should use, right, uh, conditional on x taking some value. This is a really ugly one, so, uh, oh, I left myself no room to write it. This is important, and I'm glad to see it in Pardo, because it, it, it um, let me rewrite it. This is important because it helps us distinguish between, or it heads us down the road of distinguishing between the, the concept of a predicted value and uh, a fitted value. What this means is that if you, if you repetitively fit your regression line over and over and over and over again, then your estimate of y, your expected value of your uh, value of y given x takes some value is the mean of y at that value. In other words, if we take a, a regression and here's some given value of x, right, and here's y, and we fit a line, here's our y hat. We fit another line, we get another y hat, fit another line, we get another y hat, keep fitting lines. Oddball ones come out here every now and then. Right? The, the expected value of all these observations is the true mean of y <clears throat> at that value of x. That's important because it means that our regression line is unbiased when we use it for prediction. Okay, uh, here's the important parts. And I never calculate these by hand, calculate these by hand, so I have to write them down. These will be in your textbook. We can uh, estimate the variance of our estimated intercept using the residual variance and this formula. 
Now these are variances of statistics. Variances of statistics are called standard errors because they reflect the expected variance of the sampling distribution of those statistics. And why is this useful? Because uh, we need these, obviously, to put confidence intervals or do hypothesis tests on our estimates of the regression coefficients. So the other thing that, uh, that is very important to remember, though it has very little impact in, uh, in most circumstances, is that your slope and intercept are correlated unless the mean of x happens to be strictly and perfectly zero. And we'll get to why this is important down the road. But what it means is that for statistical hypothesis tests and confidence intervals on individual regression coefficients depend on the values of the other coefficients. You can't tinker with your regression and change just one of these things. Um, if your residuals follow a normal distribution with a mean of There's a lot going on in the ladies' room. Uh, then the distribution of these uh, coefficients are normal. And I shouldn't really do that because I told you we never do. All right. The two things that we need before we can make probability statements about statistics, we have to know the... Uh, the attributes of their probability distribution, and which includes the shape of it. So we now know that the residuals are IID normal. That means independent and identically distributed normal. In a practical sense, that means that no matter where you are in X space, you have a perfect little, remember I drew that perfect little normal distribution I said it was poking out of the board? For any value at X, that little distribution has the same shape. It's centered on... Uh, the, re the regression line, and it has the same variance, okay? Then the distribution is normal, and seven, uh, that's true, actually, it turns out, um, as long as uh, n is large enough, uh, even if the errors are not normal, this is important for other reasons, even if the errors are not normal, uh, B0 and B1 are normal if n large. And this will come up a few times in statistics. What this means is that in the large sample theory, the distribution of the regression coefficients are somewhat insensitive uh, to the distribution of the residuals. What this means for you practically, you, you guys in the first homework, you did some QQ plots. We use QQ plots to assess normality. Even if you have some deviance from normality in your QQ plots, as long as it's not really strong or as long as n is large, you don't have to worry about it. It's only if your data are extremely non-normal or n is very small that you have to worry about it. Why do you worry about it? Because you need this assumption eventually to do centering and scaling and make probability statements about shear regression coefficients. This, by the way, is just the central limit theorem applied to a conditional, a situation of a conditional expectation instead of just a simple sampling theory. All right. Is that about 30 still considered large? Large is relative. It depends on your deviance from normality in your QQ plot. And that, too, is also sample-based. So you have to be, there's, this is kind of the art. And what, what it turns out that these t-tests these or t-tests that we use generally, the, the confidence intervals and hypothesis tests on these coefficients, are pretty robust to deviation from normality. They're pretty robust to it. 
but you have to judge. If you have a small sample size and you have a small, large deviance, then the, po the possibility is that you're not conserving alpha in your confidence intervals and hypothesis tests. Now, if you, if you run a hypothesis test or you put a confidence interval on there and it's absolutely minuscule, then you sort of have to ask yourself, well, does it really matter? Where it really gets problematic is the closer you get to your alpha level for any of the uh, hypothesis tests or your minimum tolerance for your confidence interval. Generally, most people um, don't worry too much about this. They'll look at a QQ plot and go, yeah, yeah, close enough, and move on. It's, um, there are some situations, by the way, where regression really falls apart. Um, if you have data that are zero inflated or truncated, you can, you can have problems with height and right, age and height. Well, how, how, what's the distribution of your data down here at very small ages? It's, it can't be, they can't go below zero. So this thing may be highly skewed. Out here, you might have a lovely normal distribution. You might have a lovely normal distribution of heights for any age out here, but down near age zero, because it's impossible for a height to be less than zero, you can end up with distributions that are skewed. You know. Or maybe even slammed like that, right on the x-axis, I should say, the y-axis. And now I've drawn something so small you can't see it. It violates my rule. Sorry. Did you get the idea? There are other scenarios when people try to do regression where their response value is percent. Percents can't be below zero or they're capped at 100, so you can get problems when you use percent as a response, for example, because those things are truncated. So whenever you get truncation, that's one issue. And there are special examples of regression and transformations that you can fix that. A log transform on Y is really commonly used to, um, to fix those because it tends to get, make them more normal. And that is why you did the log transformation. If you, if you do a log on something that is skewed like that or an exponent, you can sometimes standardize them to a normal. So we can use centering and scaling to make probability statements about the normal distribution. If your sample size is really large, we use a Z. If it's really small, we use a T as our standard, a Z a score or a T score. Let's just go straight to a T score. We can standardize any vari random variable that follows some T distribution to a standard T by taking the statistic, subtracting uh, its mean, and dividing by the standard error of the statistic. Right? And we can substitute that into a probability statement. We can go to our t distribution and we can find some negative t quantile. Maybe we're going to do this at uh, uh, alpha over 2 and we've got to have some degrees of freedom. And then we're going to find an interval that goes from that to the positive t, t quantile, which is 1 minus, that's 1 minus alpha over, no, that's alpha over 2.05, 1 minus alpha over 2, and then minus 1 degrees of freedom. That's going to equal to some probability. How do you get this thing? You go to a t-distribution, pick some alpha, pick two negative quantiles. What am I doing here? I'm just setting up a confidence interval from a t-distribution. We know that the standard t-distribution is centered on 0, and I'm finding some negative t-value and positive t-value here that are critical. Where are those t-values? Depends on what you pick for alpha. If you pick alpha equals uh, 0.05 and your degrees of freedom are large enough, these are going to be very close to minus 1.96 and plus 1.96. <coughs> Excuse me. And then you can sub this thing in here for t, because that's what t is, right? So we get, we're going to have our minus t, b0 minus beta 0 over sb0. Our plus t 
critical. You're going to find those criticals. You re rearrange and solve these algebraically, right? You're going to end up with, you're going to have your minus t critical times sb0, b0 minus beta 0, plus t critical times sb0. Didn't we do this before? Last week? So you want to get rid of this little b0, so we're going to have minus b0. Oops, I got to quit. Minus t times sb0 less than minus beta 0 less than minus b0 plus t critical times sb0. Ugh. Multiply by through, through by uh, negative 1. You orient it and you end up with a, with a, with a uh, confidence interval for your estimate of the mean, which ends up as b0 plus or minus t alpha over 2 and minus 1 degrees of freedom times the standard error of b0. This thing here is a 95 or is, is, is an alpha level confidence interval. All right. You're never going to calculate them that way by hand because that requires you calculating all these pieces and your statistical software is going to do it for you. The point I wanted to make is that the very same concepts that we went through in our review of basic statistics apply here in the regression context. If we meet these assumptions that we laid out uh, early on. I have to quit there because I see students lining up already. We'll carry on and I'll have a worked example for you uh, on Friday. And then we'll move on to um, multiple, well we're gonna do another, we'll do a special topic in simple linear regression and we'll move on to multiple regression. I will be at the recitation at 10.30 tomorrow. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, whatever, please let me know. And I know I was going a little fast. If there's anything I wrote that you were having trouble with, just let me know and we'll clear it up. Okay? Thanks, folks.